0: You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Those of you that are new, my name's Ryan. I serve as the lead pastor, founding pastor at the church. I love having you guys here today. Those of you that I hadn't seen in a while, welcome back. Great to see you here today. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to remind you, community groups are starting up, like Pastor Josh said, and uh, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we could, they can just go online and, and fill all that out. Yep. Okay, so northvalley.org. If you don't have a, a little tribe to be a part of, find your tribe and, and get involved. It'd be really good for you uh, to do that. It's great. It's a great experience. I love it. Uh, my wife and kids are, all are a part of that, have been for a long time, and it's a lot of fun. So we're looking forward to doing that uh, this season. Um, I want to say as well, I want to pause for just a moment and I want to take a minute just to remember uh, 9-11 marks a very special, significant time in American history. Um, as you probably noticed, we have a 9-11 memorial cross out in our courtyard. Um, there's an incredible story about that. I want to encourage you to read the story out there in the courtyard. We've got it all printed up for you uh, to be able to do that. And Maybe snap a photo of that. Uh, maybe you want to grab a photo of you and your family today. Uh, This morning, I want to remind you on a day like 9-11, for me personally, I remember uh, exactly where I was at. I was in a a college cafeteria with hundreds of folks. We just got let out of an accounting course. Uh, My brother and I uh, walked into the cafeteria, and there was a hush tone. You could have heard a pin drop. Uh, Fear was in the air, and the towers were smoking one plane after another, Um, and fear really gripped the hearts of everybody in the room, and I just started praying. Dear Lord, help help them. Help our country. Help the people that are hurting right now. Help every student here right now to put their faith and trust in you. Somebody should have given me a box, and I would have stood up and started preaching that day. Uh, But I just prayed. Um, I don't know where you were at or or what was going on, and perhaps some of you are, are pretty young for that, But I do think it's important that we stop and remember, you know, I think what characterizes greatness for us as people is not necessarily just peacetime and the absence of fear, but it's the presence of faith and a perseverance for freedom. And our country um, believes in that. And I think what makes our country great is a few different things. And I want to share that with you just a moment. Um, You can find these inscriptions on a lot of our currency In the United States, and and one of those uh, phrases is this, it is e pluribus unum, and that's a Latin phrase, and what it means is out of the many are the one. And I think what makes our country so great is that we have a fundamental belief of how we formed our country is that it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're uh, from Germany or you're from Ireland or from Africa or from Asia. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when we come together and we become American citizens, we are literally American citizens. Um, you go to other countries, if you've ever done international travel or business or ever lived abroad, it doesn't matter how long the American lives in that other country, Germany, France, Spain, wherever be the case, they are never, ever going to be accepted as French, German, or Spaniards. That's not true for us. It doesn't matter where you're from. It just matters, do you believe what we believe? Do you hold to the same ideas out of the many are the one? Um, I think there's a biblical truth in that um, that we find in the church that, you know, together in Christ, it doesn't matter where we're from or what background we have, educational experience or whatever, economic status, race, ethnicity. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we come together as one. The second thing I just want to point out for our country and why I think we have a great country is liberty. Um, the Bible values liberty. Um, Uh, Jesus and salvation values liberty. Uh, In America, we give choices and we uh, should be proud of liberty. Uh, We have liberty. Uh, We have a religious freedom. We have the freedom of speech. We have a freedom to start a business and run our business. Uh, You can be lazy and not do anything in America or you can actually just go after it and crush it and build a business. Um, We have a lot of liberty in our country. Not every country has a lot of liberty. They focus perhaps on equality, trying to make everything the same for everybody. Um, Liberty is a value that I think we should remember and thank God for. And then lastly, I would just say, uh, in God we trust. Uh, The Christian Judeo thought in American culture is that there is a God, and God is good, and in God we should place our trust Um, This is, uh, I know there's uh, many, many, many folks, perhaps in American culture, that do not uh, trust God or rely on God. But this is the framework. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's being uh, tested right now. There's efforts to absolutely undermine and destroy the very, very fabric of the Christian Judeo thought and ideas and values in American culture. And I want to remind you again that as believers, I think our aim ought to be is that we live with a presence of faith and a perseverance for freedom. Amen? In our country, we have a role to play. Next week, I'll be preaching on being a light into the world and how Jesus declared him the light. You have an incredible influence, uh, and I want to encourage you in that. And so, for now, what I'd like to do is ask for all our first responders to stand. This would be uh, families and… Individuals that serve with as firefighters, police officers, military, veterans and their families, would you please stand up on behalf of our staff and elder team? please stand up right now. there you go. Thank you very much for serving. Thank you. Thank you so much and uh, stay standing i 'm going to have you stand and we 're going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for these men and women that have served in our country um, Lord, the virtues that we extol and admire is courage and sacrifice and bravery. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for them and their families, and we as a church staff and elder team, thank you for the sacrifices they've made for our freedoms. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So let 9-11 be a day of remembrance, but let it be also a day to to move forward, uh, to look ahead. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to uh, draw your attention to the Gospel of John. We're picking up in John chapter 8. And uh, the title of today's message is uh, Living by God's Grace. Living by God's Grace. And some of you in the room are very gracious people. You're just, uh, you're the nice guy or you're the nice gal and you're always giving grace and you're not confronting people as much and you're not as hard on people So, and then some of you in the room are the truth tellers. Like, you see anything wrong, you say, hey, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. Or you have rules, and you reference the rules, and you can quote scripture, and you really know a lot of the truth, and both are really good. I'm not going to lie and mislead you. You need grace and truth. Jesus said he was to be full of grace and full of truth. And I think this is the vision that you and I need as believers is to be people full of grace and truth. But here's, here's reality, right? Some of us tend and trend towards being very, very gracious, and some of us trend, tend and trend towards being very, very true. So grace givers, truth tellers. Let's divide the room real quick. How many of you would say you're probably tend and trend more towards the grace giver? Raise your hand. Re- real high. Higher. There you go. Okay, I can see him. Okay, how many of you would tend and trend towards the truth tellers right here? Okay, it's about an even split. Did you know the first service was predominantly all truth tellers? Very little grace in the first service. (laughs) So my estimation was about right. I thought we'd have more grace givers in the second service. So you're going to love this message. And uh, both are very, very important uh, for us to to learn about this balance of grace and truth. Today, we're going to highlight, though, God's grace and a call to live by God's grace. Um, We're going to jump in. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is where I'm going to be working out of this morning. We've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and here we are again. John chapter 8, just as a reminder to set the context, is uh, remember what was before chapter 8 was chapter 7. And in chapter 7, there was a festival going on. Uh, there was uh, Jesus had been invited by his brothers and some friends to come down to Jerusalem and really prove himself and just show off his miraculous powers, and everybody would believe in Jesus, and Jesus is like, I'm not... Gonna go your way, I'm gonna go my way. So he ends up showing up about halfway through this festival. And then he starts teaching and preaching. And then the controversy starts. But what was the festival all about? It was a time of remembrance, it was a time of celebration where the Israelites or the nation of Israel, uh, what they would do is they would gather around the temple and set up basically. RVs and tents and everything around. Okay, there weren't RVs, but there was… they had these shelters, these shacks that they would build. Some of your Bibles call it the uh, uh, tabernacles of sorts, or some of them call it the Feast of Booths. And it was like these makeshift uh, tents and, and shelters. Well, they would celebrate and remember how God had delivered them from bondage in Israel. They would celebrate and remember how God provided for them uh, with water and food in the wilderness. And it was kind of like a, a super grateful gathering. Of remembrance. There was uh, celebrations and ceremonies in the temple, and people would leave the campfires uh, and get to bed and then wake up early in the morning. And then there would be um, some ceremonies in the temple where the priest would remind everybody and read to them the scriptures. And so, this is what it was. It was a remembrance. And there were uh, many uh, uh, commentators would agree there was drinking that would go on. There was a little bit of partying and festivity that would go on because the spirit of, the, of that festival was good. It was excited and grateful. So what happens is, I believe where we're gonna find ourselves today is kind of like, have you ever been at a party and it just goes a little too long and you're like, it's time to go. Gotta get out of here. This is spiraling out of control. Uh, Perhaps if you visited Country Thunder, you've been there before, uh, you know uh, it can get a little wild down there. And so uh, this is... uh A festival that would be leading into that. Chapter 7 is the backstory. Jesus uh, did teaching and preaching in this festival, declares himself as the living water, in essence, declares himself as the Messiah in the temple. His brothers and all his friends are super excited. Yes, he's done it. Many people think this is perhaps the last week of Jesus's life. And he does this incredible act of grace that we're going to see in the life of a woman who perhaps was out partying or perhaps was out uh, uh, definitely in some uh, uh, immorality and uh, not a good thing going on. So let's see what happens. John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 says that basically after there was a big argument between Jesus and the Pharisees, kind of everybody went to his own house and Jesus didn't have a house to go to. Let's look at verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Um, Jesus camped out literally on the mountain um, overlooking the temple. This is a geographical location that you can jump in a plane today, fly from Phoenix over to Israel, land in Jerusalem, and go find this place. I'll be on the Mount of Olives uh, in the springtime uh, to visit the location. And um, Jesus camped out there. It says early in the morning that he woke up. Uh, He came again to the temple. So he's been going there a lot. It's early in the morning. All the people came to him. John says, uh, basically, there's a buzz. Jesus has been doing it for a while. He's so controversial, so cool. People are drawn to him. And it says, then he sat down. That's kind of interesting. Because why would you sit down if you got a big crowd? That's the way the religious Jewish teachers would do it. So, he sits down and he started teaching them. He started teaching. Verse 3, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the bad guys in the storyline, uh, the religious authorities, they brought a woman who had been caught in, uh, uh, in adultery. Um, I, I, in some of your translation, it may say caught in the act of adultery. Uh, I think this would perhaps be at the tail end of that festival, people staying out too late. Partying, and then this event happens. This woman, either she was married or the man that she was with was married, but the scripture tells us caught in the act of adultery. Scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman. How did they bring her? Uh, Anybody that is caught in adultery probably is not going to go, Oh, great idea. Let me just follow you over there. Let's just go. I want to see Jesus. Um, This is probably not the idea. She could have been drug there. Um, she would have known perhaps a Jewish law says that a woman like this or any individual caught in adultery could be, uh, the biblical law was stoned to death. She'd been caught in the act of adul- adultery and then they say uh, sh- they placed her in the midst. This would have been right in perhaps right in front of Jesus. Uh, We don't know if she had a lot of clothes on. We definitely could imagine this is incredibly shameful, very terrifying, very degrading. Um, There's all sorts of things wrong with this picture. Um, You don't treat people like that, even if somebody is uh, guilty, guilty, guilty. Uh, They said to him, teacher, they call Jesus teacher, not Lord. They just say teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Jesus would have known what the Mosaic law commands, uh, and so they quote it. Verse 5, it says, Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Uh, The law of Moses, it is true that there was a biblical law prescribed for death for both partners involved in the adulterous relationship. But notice the key word I just said is both. They bring a woman, but they don't bring a man. Why didn't they bring the man? Well, maybe the man bowed up on them and and clocked the guy that tried to bring them. I I don't, we don't know. Or maybe these guys are just causing trouble and they're being abusive in their power and taking the woman. The the law of Moses commanded, according to Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, that both people, both parties, were to be uh, put to death by stoning for adulterous relationships. Uh, it says, Now in the law of Moses, verse 5, uh, commanded us to stone such women. That is not true. It should be uh, men and women, in it, both partners. So they're liars, uh, and then they say, uh, "So what do you say, Jesus?" And verse six tells us what the apostle John says. He's giving the commentary. He's giving you uh, the apostle John is the nearest and dearest disciple. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He gives the commentary and explains the motive and the purpose. He says, "This they said, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him." And let me pause right there. So what were they testing Jesus? Well, again, the biblical law mandated that execution. But the trick was that the Roman law actually removed capital punishment jurisdiction from the Jewish courts. In this case, thus the leaders were testing Jesus whether Jesus would reject the biblical law and and side uh, with the Romans and turn against his heritage, or would he reject the Roman law? which would give them an opportunity to report him to the Romans as a lawbreaker. In other words, either way Jesus goes, uh, if he sides with the Romans on this or sides with the Jews, it's not good. He's going to be in trouble. Jesus is masterful, uh, 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 all-knowing, and so I think he responds in an incredible way. Uh, What does he do? He doesn't stand up and start talking to them. The Scripture says, look at verse... uh, the tail end of verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What did he write? What did he write on the ground? Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote on the ground, but let's continue to read. Verse 7, and they continued to ask him, and then he stood up and he said to them, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, two times he does this, he bends down and he writes on the ground. Uh, what did He write on the ground? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I do want to remind you that God, him, God the Father wrote on with His finger on the Ten Commandments, on stone. The Bible tells us this according to Exodus 31, 18 and Deuteronomy 9. Perhaps Jesus is perhaps writing something from the Ten Commandments uh, to convict them enough, to challenge them, let Him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, In essence, he didn't say, don't stone her. He said, if you don't have any sin, then you can stone her. But everybody knew that they struggled with sin. And whatever Jesus wrote on the ground had a powerful effect. Look what it says. But when they heard it, verse 9, verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why would the older ones leave? Maybe they were the most convicted. Uh, Maybe they're the ones that realized they had done all sorts of violations themselves. So they go away. What perhaps is he referring to? Uh, Maybe he wrote on the ground, uh, you shall not covet. That would be the 10th commandment. Uh, Maybe he wrote, you shall not uh, commit adultery, the 7th commandment. Maybe he did that. They're thinking, well, I didn't commit adultery, but maybe they remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've lusted in your heart after another woman, you've already committed adultery. Jesus Christ takes the the law and he raises the bar. Some people think Jesus uh, uh, came to abolish it, but no, Jesus came to fulfill the law to be the perfect fulfillment of it. Um, These individuals start to walk away because they know that they're guilty of something. They know that they've sinned. They know that they've struggled. The truth is, is you and I, I think, could place ourselves in that crowd in that day and realize that we've all sinned. Uh, We've all violated God's law at some point or another. There's 10 commandments. I'll just read them to you. The first is you shall have no other gods before me. Anytime you put anyone or anything in front of God, you've broken the first commandment. The Bible says commandment number two is you shall not make any idols. You idol a relationship, you idol a vehicle, you idol a home, you idol another person, a job, a money, career, whatever it is that you idolize, you've broken the second commandment. Number three is you shall not take the, uh, the name of the Lord God in vain. Uh, Some of you speak about God as it's no big deal and you use his name in vain. It's not just uh, saying GD or JC, uh, but it's uh, making very light of it. It's even saying, I swear to God's name is a holy name. Every single one of us are guilty of breaking these commandments. Every single one of us are in desperate need of God's grace. Uh, Number four, you remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Some of you treat church like you just show up whenever you want, no big deal. The Bible tells us, the Old Testament tells us, New Testament says it too, that the Sabbath day, a day set apart, different, is supposed to be real special, where you come and worship the Lord, you serve the Lord. Uh, We're guilty of breaking this. Uh, What about number five, honor your father and mother? If we're not showing honor, even if they don't deserve honor, we should be showing honor some way or another. Number six is you shall not murder. You say, I'm not a murderer. You know what Jesus said? If you have anger and hatred in your heart towards another person, you've already committed murder. This is uh, where we're at. Uh, You shall not commit adultery. I never committed adultery, or you did commit adultery. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery you shall not steal. Number eight. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This means you misrepresent somebody. You talk trash about them, and you, you wreck their name and reputation. Here's the, here's the reality. We're all, we're all lawbreakers, you and me. Uh, we, we're all guilty. This woman's guilty, but Jesus is going to save her. He bends down, writes on the ground, and then everybody starts to go, you know what, I got sin in my life, I'm out of here, I'm not going to do this. Jesus busted us. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Woman is not a rude term, it would be like what we say down south in Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. Excuse me, ma'am, ma'am. Very kind, very endearing, very, very respectful. Jesus, in a sense, says, Ma'am, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No. And look what she said, No one what? Say it out loud, Lord. She didn't say, No, Rabbi, no, teacher, no, Jesus. She says, Lord. What an appropriate response. Uh, he's the Savior he's saving her life. Um, And Jesus said this, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Truth and grace working all together. What is grace? Grace is God's goodness towards those who don't deserve it. Grace is God's goodness towards those who do not deserve it. This woman did not deserve God's grace. This woman deserved death. Jesus shows grace. Uh, I experience God's grace. I feel like sometimes in my life, when I look at my life, I'm so grateful for the church. I'm grateful for you all. I'm grateful for the life that I have. I'm grateful for my wife, my kids, and every once in a while, I just feel like I I cannot believe that I have what I have. I'm grateful for my, my salvation. I'm grateful for the education I've had. I'm grateful. Um, But I have to say, there's times where I feel like, man, I just don't deserve this. And I think that's a good posture to have. Uh, When I was a kid, I was a troublemaker, a lawbreaker. And uh, have you ever been swimming in a pool and and having a lot of fun? Maybe you can think back as a kid. And then the lifeguard comes, they blow the whistle. And they say, hey, out of the pool. You ever been there before? Uh, The kid says, I have. Yes, me too, buddy. And uh, I can think of times in my life even now where it's so good and having so much fun and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, maybe somebody's going to blow the whistle and say, all right, it's time to quit. Get out of the pool. Um, I think it's because I I experienced a a radical conversion, pulled out of death, given life, pulled out of darkness, walking in light. There's a sense in me that is incredibly, I feel indebted to God that it's so gracious, I'm so grateful. And then in the back of my mind, it's like I think it's somehow it's gonna go, hey, all right, time's up, (laughs) it was good. Uh, Things are not gonna go like they were. Grace is God's goodness towards those who don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve all the grace that God has for us. Uh, Don't forget that. You and me are actually like that woman who doesn't deserve it. You broke the law. You've broken the Ten Commandments, not just yesterday or the day before. You're probably breaking them every day. You're like, that's mean. I, yes, that is mean. I know. I have broken them. I break them. Uh, I can covet and want something bigger or better. Uh, I could easily, uh, for a time period, put somebody else or something else uh, in front of my admiration and worship and adoration of Jesus Christ and I'm an idolater. Uh, John Calvin put it like this, uh, the heart is a idol-making factory. It makes idols all the time. Jeremiah the prophet said, uh, who can trust the heart? It's wicked and deceitful above all things. You say, wait a second, I remember in the Proverbs it says, Uh, that our heart, above all else, guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And you are right in that. And there's goodness in the heart, but there's also evil in the heart. So what do we need to know about God's grace? Uh, A a few different things. Number one is that God's grace saves. The Bible tells us a a radical um, message of salvation by grace, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, Uh, Let's read this together, Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let me ask you a question, for by what have we been saved? Grace. And it is through what? Faith. Let's try that again. It's by what we're saved? Grace. And it is through faith. Okay, let me illustrate that. God's grace saves you. Uh, This is different than Catholicism. This is different than Mormonism. This is different than Judaism. Okay? Those are works-oriented religions. Um, Protestant Christianity, this was the uh, cry of the Reformation that we are saved by grace. There was a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther who protested against the Catholic Church in that day and time and said hey, you guys all have the Bible in Latin. These people can't read Latin. I will translate it because not only do I know Latin, I also know Greek and I also know Hebrew. Therefore, I'm going to translate the entire Bible in the German language for the good of all people. And then this message comes out, by grace you're saved, not through works. It's by grace you're saved. So, the message of Christianity is, and you and I are saved by God's grace. Uh, When the towers came tumbling down uh, on 9-11, there was a cross that emerged out of the rubble, just like the one you see in our courtyard. You know what I believe that cross was a message of? God's grace, that he was with them in the midst of the worst moment of their life. You need to know that the message of the gospel for you and God's grace is that God is with you at your ground zero. Wherever you're at, whatever your struggle is, God's with you. He's never abandoned you. He's always available to you. And his message is a message of grace. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. How could I illustrate this? Let me illustrate it with water. Uh, in Arizona, or let's say broader in the southwest United States, we have been in a historical drought for about uh, three decades. We're in a drought. We've been in a drought. It's, it's no new, nothing new. I've worked with an ASU climatologist on research for this. I uh, help provide data and research for quail habitat. Uh, one of my hobbies is is just quail hunting, and we do forecasts, and so I have to work with the professionals. We're undoubtedly in a drought. We have been in a drought. Uh, water is a key essential. Without water and air conditioners, my argument would be is there would be no Phoenix. You need both. You need water and AC. Um, uh, Arizona, though, specifically, there's big controversy about this, because we channel a lot of our water out of the reservoirs, Lake Powell, Lake Mead, and they go out to California, Vegas, they go even to Mexico, and there's, we're in a drought, um, but the, the message is, is that wherever that water travels to, there's life, fair, there's cities, uh, Phoenix is here, and it's built upon, yes, we have a grid system on how we laid out the city, but Phoenix is built because we have canals. And the name Phoenix means out of the ashes. And if you look at the ancient history, not the ancient history, but the history of uh, of Phoenix, uh, they found the valley, and they found all these kind of ancient canal systems. And we just redid them. Some of you remember when the canals were mud, not concrete. Raise your hand if you remember that day. Some of you water skied perhaps in those canals. Uh, Today, they're fenced off, they're concreted, and they have a very valuable purpose. The canals help channel life. So what am I getting at here? Here's what I'm getting at, is God's grace is like the water. It's what brings life. The canal is like the faith. It's the conduit. Uh, We are saved by God's grace. It's not our faith that saves us. It's God's grace that saves us. The faith is just the channel in which it works through. So don't ever forget that, that God's grace, every time you see those canals, thank you God for your grace. Thank you that your grace will never run out on me. Leads to my second point, number two, what is grace? Grace abounds. There's no uh, shortage of God's grace. Grace abounds. For the Christian life, if you're struggling and you have an addiction, you've got a, a, a you're continually re- realizing your sin, you need to know that the Bible tells us that God's grace abounds. Um, what does this mean? Does this mean if it's God's grace abounds that you can just sin and live however you want? No way. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to that argument to the church in uh, Rome. He says, now the law came to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death and grace also might reign through uh, righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means? Here's what you need to know. Grace is not a license to sin. Yes, you are saved by God's grace. Yes, God's grace abounds, but it's never a license to sin. Grace is intended uh, to do something in us. Grace is something to do that's intended to change us, to heal us, to strengthen us. When you have grace uh, without truth, what you end up having oftentimes is licentiousness. If you're a very gracious person, but you don't care about truth, you end up living a a, a, a licentious lifestyle. Um, uh, There were people in Paul's day and there are people in our church uh, today that they're all grace but with no truth. They're the hyper grace movements in American culture right now in churches. They're all grace and they don't talk about truth. Today, in many churches, they'll tell you everything they're for, but they will tell you nothing that they're against. And then the churchgoers are confused about, are we against anything? Should we stand up and should we stand out? Paul's not saying, okay, it's just uh, get all the grace you want. Who cares what it's like? The law doesn't matter. No, the law has a purpose and value. Grace without truth is licentiousness. Uh, Truth without grace is legalism. We need grace. We need truth. Uh, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And you need to know as a believer, the good news is, is that grace does abound. You can have a start over, a do over day by day. But this doesn't give you a license to sin. Number three is grace accepts. Uh, grace accepts. Grace means uh, showing God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. If you, if you want to be a gracious person, uh, you're an accepting person. Accepting people does not mean that you're approving of their lifestyle, their choices, or their actions, but it means in the English standard version, the word would be welcoming. You could be very kind and accepting without approving. Um, What is the basis for this? Uh, The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, and uh, Romans 15, 7 through 8 says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Let me give you an example. Do you have anybody that hurts you or irritates you or frustrates you uh, or annoys you? Uh, the implication of this idea of accepting other people as Christ has accepted you is that you're in a sense, uh, you're able to either look past that or you're able to endure that and you're you're loving them anyway. Um, in the church world, we call it EGRs. These are extra grace required kind of folks where… Uh, uh, or in your marriage, you may have an EGR, one of your kids, or one, one of your spouses. Well, somebody is extra grace required. Um, accepting one another. Uh, it, when you accept one another, you're, you're not accepting them on conditions of, or behavior. You're not saying, I accept you only if you act this certain way or not. Uh, accepting somebody is not being overly judgmental of people. Um, If we're overly judgmental, we're hypercritical. Typically, the more truth, the tending and trending towards all truth and no grace, you'll get the hyperjudges. This is where the Pharisees and the scribes come into play in the New Testament. They are the uh, antagonist in the storyline of Scripture uh, for the New Testament. Uh, They're the ones that are incredibly judgmental. Uh, Romans 15 tells us that we're to accept each other as Christ has accepted us, um, Christ accepts us while we're helpless. Christ accepts us while we're still sinners. Christ accepts us even as we're even enemies, according to Romans 5. And you may say, uh, what does this mean? It means accepting people that are different from you uh, in a general sense, that you're accepting people that have a different uh, lifestyle, a different perhaps political stance. You're accepting or welcoming at some level or another. This is what grace Uh, can do in the life of the believer. The world will say, if you change, then maybe I will accept you. If you change, maybe I will accept you. Jesus says, I'll accept you so that you might change. That woman was accepted, and then he calls her to change. You, he says, you need to sin no more. Uh, This is after he speaks face to face with her. This is after she calls him Lord. This is after she has been saved from a public stoning and humiliation. He accepted her so that she may change. What you need to know that in relationships we need to be incredibly accepting people. You don't have to approve of the lifestyle, but you need to be accepting. And grace does that. Uh, Jesus says to you, I accept you right where you're at. Come to me with all your uh, burdens. Come to me with all your struggle and I'll bring change in your life. Lastly, I want to tell you about how grace uh, forgives. Grace forgives. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Some of you are are good at forgiving. Some of you are not good at forgiving. Uh, Grace means we forgive others the same way that Christ forgives us. I heard somebody say um, this phrase that uh, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. And then you discover that prisoner was you. When we don't forgive people, what we're doing is we're imprisoning ourselves in bitterness, hatred, anger, and frustration. There's something incredibly spiritually healthy and helpful when we forgive people. Uh, Forgiveness is something that's commanded by Jesus. It's not suggested. Forgiveness is something that doesn't require that you have reconciliation. If somebody wrongs you, you can still forgive them. I forgive you in the name of Jesus or Lord, I forgive that person in the name of Jesus, even though they've never acknowledged it. Uh, we have a ministry here at the church called Fathers in the Field. And um, one, of the, one of the things that we call our, our young boys to do in a three-year commitment is to uh, forgive their father for abandoning them. And many times the father never comes and asks for forgiveness. But we teach the young boy to say, forgiveness is a command from Jesus. When you forgive, you will be more free. Some of you perhaps are imprisoned in your own bitterness, frustration, anger, and hatred because somebody has wronged you. The Bible tells us that when we forgive, we're free. So, I want to challenge you in that. When you, when you understand grace and you live by God's grace, you're going to be a forgiving person. You're not going to nurse uh, grudges and bitterness and anger. If you're carrying that around, that's unhealthy for you, and it will hurt you and hurt others. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Ephesians 5, 4.31, let me read it. It says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away uh, from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, how has Christ forgived you? He has forgiven you totally. The Bible says he separated your sins as far as the East is from the West. He, he's immediately forgiven you. When you confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, he's forgiven you. He's uh, Christ forgives you without limit that's how He's forgiven you. He's the perfect model. It's not like uh, you sinned one too many times and then God's like, you blew it. You're… I'm out of forgiveness. I don't have enough for you. You're done. Christ uh, ongoingly does it. What does forgiveness mean? Uh, Literally, the the technical term is to… that idea to be put away from you. It means to lift or to carry. It means, in other words, when you're forgiving people you're in a sense taking that burden that you're, you've got on your heart, you're taking it and you're putting it away. You're giving it to the Lord. Lord, they wronged me. They won't even acknowledge they're wrong. I forgive them. How can you do that intellectually? I think this is how you can do it. The Bible says that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. Everyone screws up. To me, I can forgive somebody and go, they're a sinner, just like me. They screw up, just like me. I forgive them. They need God's grace. Um, It means to lift or to carry away the burden. It's the opposite of guilt. It means that you choose not to remember it anymore. Does the Bible even affirm this idea of choosing not to remember in forgiveness? I think it does. Isaiah 43, 25, I'll just quote it to you. It says, the Lord speaks and says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions uh, for my sake, and I will remember not your sins. Uh, I heard a a story of a woman by the name of Clara uh, Barton. Uh, She was the founder of American Red Cross Uh, somebody comes up to her and says, hey, uh, Clara, do you remember that person that sinned against you? They defamed you. They defrauded you. They wronged you. Um, They're here. What do you think about that? And she pauses for a moment very quickly and says, I distinctly remember forgetting about that she actively in her mind decided not to foster that idea of remembering somebody's sins. Perhaps maybe some of us are guilty of having a long history or record of wrongs that somebody has committed, and we're nurturing bitterness. The Bible tells us that when we nurture bitterness and anger, it's like giving the devil a foothold into our life. And so, uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger put it away. Get rid of it. Uh, I want to encourage you too. the idea is choosing not to remember it. I know that uh, it's hard to forget when somebody has wronged you, but do the best that you can to put it away and forget forget about it. Forgiveness means is that uh, you're going to commit to not bringing up one's sins, that you won't use it as ammunition to attack the other when you get into another disagreement. It means that you're not going to provide a history lesson of offenses when somebody has wronged you and you bring up a long list of offenses. It means that you're not going to hold it above their head to control them or to hold it over their head for bargaining later in the relationship. I want to remind you in closing is that forgiveness is a choice, it's not a feeling. You don't have to feel like you Uh, need to forgive this person. Bible commands it. Jesus just says, forgive. When Peter came to Jesus and said, how many times should I forgive this person if they wrong me? Jesus's response in two different gospels is in essence unlimited. You just forgive, you forgive, you forgive. Why? Because if you don't forgive, you trap yourself in your own prison of bitterness and anger. And that's not what God wants for you. Grace ought to orient us and challenge us to be the most forgiving people. We're to do it with kindness and tenderness and try our best to to forget. Even if there is no reconciliation in sight, we ought to be the most forgiving people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I pray uh, today that grace would change us. Uh, Lord, that we would be people that live by God's grace. And if we are in need of that grace today, thank you that your word says that where sin increases, let grace abound. I pray that we would lean into that and remember that. And thank you that we're saved by grace and we should live by grace. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, before I uh, jump off the stage, I just wanna say thank you so much. Many of you uh, give financially and that is an act of grace as well. The Bible says that um, generosity is, a, is an act of God's grace. And so thank you for doing that. Um, we're already planning for our new year and we wanna finish strong financially. So uh, you can help by doing that, by being faithful and give regularly. Uh, especially as we've moved into the campus and uh, we opened up a building. We're expecting probably some unexpected uh, bills and challenges as you open up a new facility and all that kind of stuff. But we're grateful for that and grateful for you. So I want to remind you, too, if you have not yet started giving and being a part of our ministry uh, partnership here at North Valley, there's four different ways you can give. And thank you for being a part. So we're going to continue to worship. Let's continue. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.